hands down one of my favorite, favorite, absolute favorite San Diegans, Ken Kramer, joins us today. Now, Ken, longtime broadcaster, storyteller here in town, uh, best known for his series of work, which is entitled About San Diego. And uh, if you know me, you know I'm very passionate about San Diego, which is probably why I love this guy so much, because he does such a great job celebrating our community, our town, uh, its history. Some may argue it has no history, which is why we have people like Ken Kramer delivering the goods with his show about San Diego. And uh, he, he shares in this forthcoming interview just so many amazing stories about our community, our town here, as well as the production of his show. Just really good stuff. And uh, it was a distinct honor and privilege to sit down with Ken here at my home. And I've been doing a lot of stuff out of my house recently because, which which would explain why I've been dormant uh, regarding the podcast for quite some time. Uh, it turns out that I have a herniated disc. And this is something that uh, I'm not aware of or don't really know much about. I just got diagnosed with it this morning after getting an MRI, but uh, it, it's some serious shit. <laughs> Part of my language here uh, to the people that uh, followed Ken Kramer over here. At times we do get a little raw, but um, yeah, this pain is like nothing I have ever felt. And despite trying to do physical therapy and other methods after getting the MRI this morning, uh, I've learned that it's it's a disc that is herniated, and uh, I, I guess it's at like an eight millimeter mark, I'm told. It's bulging out eight millimeters, about the size of a pencil eraser, and, and it's pressing right on my sciatic nerve, which has been just producing a tremendous amount of pain and many sleepless nights from my lower back down my leg into my toes. It's just crazy stuff. So uh, from what I understand, as crazy as it sounds, uh, back surgery is probably going to be in my future. And uh, the thing that's been scaring me the most is my ability. Uh, well, obviously, I want to live pain free, but my ability to be able to surf again. And I would definitely attribute this injury or this situation to the fact that I do surf. I'm a bigger guy. And that combination has produced pretty gnarly results. So because of that, I've been a little bit off the radar, uh, needless to say, but more podcasts on the way, plenty of content getting pushed out, and uh, we're not slowing down anytime soon. Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors, the first licensed uh, adult use cannabis license in the state of California, just not San Diego, but uh, Tory Holistics. Thank you for your sponsorship. Tory Holistics, it's amazing. When they first opened, you know, they were just serving the medicinal community uh, throughout 2017 where they would serve, you know, I know this on record, you know, about 100, 150, maybe 200 people max a day uh, the last year. Now that things are recreational, open to the public, adult use, they're seeing upwards of five, six, 600 people a day. It's just packed over there. And People are realizing it's the place to go if you are looking for cannabis-related products, whether they're uh, CBD or THC-based products. I'll tell you, the CBDs have, uh, have worked wonders when it comes to uh, dealing with the back pain because I won't take pain pills. I have a really weird relationship with pills. I'm afraid of them. And um, so I've been taking some CBD, like these gummies, these uh, cushy, punch, uh, cushy Punch CBD gummies, and uh, they've helped me out tremendously, and I get them over at Tory Holistics, and it provides some relief in, in the lower back just as far as the inflammation is concerned. You know, a couple of Advil, some CBDs, it just takes the edge off a little. But uh, then they also have, obviously, plenty of THC products if that's what you're looking for, and certainly look for them in Sorrento Valley and online at ToryHolistics.com. Also uh, new on the program or platform, mentioned him before, the scooter farm. Are you kidding me? My son's so pumped. I've got a scooter kid at home. It's true. He and all his friends, they love the scooters. 
and uh, it's a fast-growing sport, and uh, we'll get him on the skateboard one day, but right now I encourage anything that he likes. He likes scootering, so I encourage his scootering, and I encourage you, if you've got a scooter grom or you're a scooter person, uh, head on into the scooter farm in Claremont, right down the street from the skate park. Bo and the crew, they do a tremendous job over there, and uh, it's run like an old-school skate shop. You know, they're not they're not motivated by the buck. They're, motiva- uh, they're motivated by the movement, and these kids and all these people People that are so pumped on going to their shop and getting decked out with professional scooter gear. They've got everything there. So uh, check out the Scooter Farm in Claremont, right off of Claremont Mesa Boulevard, or Claremont Drive, excuse me, or online, uh, thescooterfarm.com. Also encourage you to check out South Coast. You know my love for South Coast. Uh, currently carrying all our U gear. You can check them out at southcoast.com. They've been here in the community since 1974, and they've got a wide variety of all surf, snow, skate-related products. Everything you need, they'll get you taken care of. Promise you. South Coast, they've got five locations between PB and OB, and you can check them out online, South Coast Surf Shops, at southcoast.com in fact we should get uh we should get mr kramer ken of about san diego to do a story on south coast they really do have a very rich history here in san diego which takes us to ken kramer yeah it's uh it's an absolute pleasure in all (laughs) in all honesty having you in my home right now well thank you it's a i'm honored to be invited thank you very much for having me chris this is san diego royalty right here oh i don't know that we would go to that has royalty dipped to that level that i know come on (laughs) in my world you are my favorite living broadcaster here in san diego i that's quite an honor and i appreciate it very much it's very kind of you to say that i'm fortunate to be able to do what i do and i kind of love it you know in my semi-retirement here yeah i thought you were retired what happened yeah what happened is and i don't think he'd mind my telling you uh tom carlo who's the general manager of kpbs said yeah you know you're retired and everything but would you consider coming back periodically and doing a few shows so i do um, as I've said before, you know, you don't want to spend all your retirement in the hammock. Right. So I don't. And what is involved when it comes to producing a show? How, how much uh, heavy lifting is involved for you? Uh, quite a bit. I, you know, um, because it's a variety show, it isn't a, a one topic kind of show like Huel Hauser used to do where he'd walk around and say, we're just going to go like to one park. Right. And we're just going to take a, hey, Louie, take a look at that and this, this and the other. We really produce the segments, about six of them in each show. So there's a, obviously a lot of writing that goes into it. There that. is, and there's there's going out and shooting it, and then you know the drill. You know, when you're doing television, you isolate your thoughts, your sound on tape, you write to that, you put it all together. Then I work with Suzanne Bartol, who's my photographer and editor, and we look at it and say, oh, that isn't quite right. So you're, you're kind of uh, fixing it, working with it, polishing it. Then you get the whole segment together, and you do maybe six of those. Then we go into the studio and we live tape the show, where, um, you know, where you just roll in the segments. Right. I just recently, though, that we have changed that process a little, where now we do the ins and outs and take them back. And, you know, not to get too much inside baseball. But no, I love pe- it. People that's probably what, know what we're talking yeah, about. And yeah, and that's what we do here. No, I love the inside baseball. And I want to ask you a lot of questions about sure. about the show, because that obviously is what connects so much of us here in San Diego. And it's funny you bring up Huel Hauser, because I, I think to... Uh, to those who are a fan of what you do, a lot of us are also a fan of what Huel Hauser did as well. Yeah, Huel Hauser, for those who might not know, uh, was a fellow who, and he was really a very smart businessman. He did a bunch of things where he would go to a location and just take a look around. And I met him a time or two, and, and the thing about him that struck me is that he seemed so lacking in guile. He was just such a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Earnest? Yeah, earnest and unassuming fellow. But there was a certain calculation to that, I always thought, because he was frequently interviewing people who didn't have any experience being interviewed. And he would put them at great ease, almost like Columbo, you know, that old show where, oh, shucks, I don't know anything about this. He would go down to their level, which is what was genius. And that that truly was genius. (laughs) And so he would get these remarkably relaxed interviews 
with people who'd never really done that kind of thing before. Right. And here was Huelhauser talking to them and getting great things from him. He was a smart, smart guy. But his style was more, because yours is seems more premeditated. Yeah, it it's is. It's more informative, educational, where his seemed a little bit more free-spirited and kind of free-form, correct? Correct. I would take issue maybe with the word educational only because, and I understand that there is some education involved, but I kind of think of it as history light. Mm. You know, there's there's uh, Elsa Sevilla with whom I work at KPBS, and she does extraordinarily detailed, good segments that are really focused on San Diego history. It's called San Diego's Historic Places. I've seen those. Yeah, and and they're really, really good. Mine is a whole lot more kind of almost like trivia where you're slapping your forehead and saying, I didn't know that. You know, little, the best. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's just little, <laughs> little things that you didn't know. And then we kind of move on to the next thing. And I suppose if the viewers are looking and they say, well, that isn't terribly interesting to me, you know, in three or four minutes, there'll be another story. Yeah. And before we go back, I want to start with where you are today. So you've recently rebooted about San Diego on KPBS, and how many shows are you doing? We just did five shows, okay. five new shows. And I, I, I have to be careful about it because I really am retired. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> but, but I do. I like to run and play and go out and, you know, do things. And, you know, I spend a lot of time up in Pasadena where I grew up and still have family. And do, you know, a lot of other things. But I'll come back from time to time and do a show. But it's, oh, he's back, he's back. Well, kind of, yeah. I mean... We're just going to refresh some shows and do some new shows now and again just to keep the franchise alive and because I love it. Yeah, and, and when it comes to these five shows, what are some of the things you hit this time around? I know you did the uh, Kensington Caves again. Yeah, very good. The Kensington Caves, uh, for people who don't know about that, it's a guy named Art Gonzalez, and Art lives not too far from where we're speaking here right at the moment, and he has underneath his house this incredible network of tunnels and caves that a former owner back in the 1940s and 50s dug. And I'm talking, this is some serious stuff. Man. You go down like 60 feet, and from there you go out into tunnels, and then there are seven rooms that are the size of the room that we're talking in here. And Gigantic. what were they built for? As bomb shelters at the time? No, they were, they were simply his obsession. He just, the story is that he started digging a barbecue pit one day and got carried away and just never stopped. <laughs> but I mean, tons and tons, countless tons of dirt hauled out. And I mean, when he had these rooms, he made one into kind of like a playroom. There's a ping pong table down there and a refrigerator and things like that. Bizarre. Truly bizarre. What motivated him is hard to say, but um, he didn't think of it as a bomb shelter. He didn't think of it as a wine cellar. He didn't think of it as anything like that. He just had to do this digging. He was a very eccentric guy. He, he was the inventor of the fiberglass fly rod and also a kind of a reverse osmosis technique for purifying water. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I'm not saying he was wealthy as Midas, but he was doing okay. Right. And the fascinating thing is it's, it's underneath this house that's not any different from yours or mine, you, except that in his house, when we went there the first time, right next to the refrigerator was a little piece of plywood. And you shifted that plywood, to, oh, and now there's a hole and you can see a ladder goes down Bizarre. 60 feet. 60 feet. To, to where you start to go out and walk. And you go downhill from there, and you got to crouch and crawl. If you saw the story, we're kind of in our, on our bellies crawling yes. through this stuff. So weird. That's and so fun. Yeah. Yeah, we did that. We, if, you're, if you're out in the desert out by um, Borrego Springs and you see those metal sculptures out there, I think a lot of people have seen them. Uh, we wanted to know who did this and why did they do it and what was the motivation. It turned out the property was owned by a guy named Avery. And if you know those Avery sticky labels? Yeah. Him. His family. <laughs> he had this land and he wanted to be a place of, of public art. So he contacted a guy named Ricardo Braceda, who is just a trip. I mean, this guy is an incredibly interesting, fascinating guy. And we found him up in Aguanga, California, where he has something that looks more than anything else like a car lot, just full of these, you know, these, these treasures that he creates out of metal. So we interview him and find out, you know, the kind of person he is. A little road trip, wow. just for fun. 
That's a that's a great way to spend your retirement. Well, it's not bad. And then and then uh, <laughs> th- there was a place called the Bostonia Ballroom, which was in El Cajon, and this was a place that well, it's just like a dance hall now, um, where people get together for wedding receptions and things like that. But back in the day, this place was kind of a spit and beer, you know, uh, place for country music and and western swing. And people like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and a guy named Smokey Rogers and all these early figures from country and Western music would perform there in El Cajon before they were really big names. So sailors would come in buses from San Diego to go out there and they would have beer and popcorn and dance at the Bostonia Ballroom. And so many people remember that place. That's so fascinating because, okay, so the sailors were going out east to East County. There's a place here. Okay, so we're we're in Kensington area, Normal Heights area, mid-city. And right down the street, there's a house that's actually just going on the market. And I was going to ask you about it, if you've ever heard anything about it, or maybe this is another show. It might be. Well, what's the deal? Where the trolley line used to go straight up Adams Avenue and drop sailors off. And it was a, um, it was a, uh, it was a place where ladies would entertain sailors, and they had windows where you could look into the bedrooms. That's the big thing with the house. You go upstairs, and you can actually see there are windows that face into the bedrooms, so you can pick which room you want to go in. But before you go upstairs, there's this whole ballroom area, which is now the living room of the house. And you can actually see the escape staircase going down the side of it <laughs> in case things went awry. I, I have to know more about this. I swear this is like you. a great, great story. Yeah, it I was mean, a full on, uh, yeah, just bar. That, see, now that's the kind of story I just love about San Diego. Little things like that that you wouldn't know. You know, you drive every day in the commute to your to your work and you notice that the road makes a little curve and yeah you pay attention there's a little curve there but I'm the guy who's going to find out that there was a Native American graveyard there many years ago and that's why they built the road that way so when you tell me a story like that I say that's a story a full brothel that is fantastic and and I'm wondering if the years match up where hey on the way to the uh the country music show (laughs) we could stop off here you might have missed the first act (laughs) you might have missed the first act (laughs) oh that's so fascinating yeah yeah while on that same kind of subject there's another thing that is always fascinated me in this community and that's the story of the floating castle have you ever heard of that one the floating castle and this is more in the 60s and 70s and it was like shag carpeting on the walls and the whole bit and they would take people out there it's all lore that's why i know nothing about it other than stories uh you know none of those stories have reached my desk <laughs> but that is not to say that it isn't true and but, i run in different circles well, probably I'm, I'm not sure but <laughs> but but i will tell you this is how i get stories sure people come and they tell me things like this and they tell me you know they're oh did you know there was this they do a little checking and sometimes it's true sometimes it's not true you know there never really were little people who lived in the houses up by you know, Mount Soledad, right? Uh, it's a great story. It just doesn't happen to have the benefit of truth. So there's no truth to that, that the Munchkins and the Wizard no. of Oz didn't no. take up residence on Mount Soledad. No. Now, as you go up the road there, you look off to the left, and it's not as clear as it used to be in years gone by because they've modified the houses. But the road goes up at an angle, and as you look over, the houses are on the flat. So it looks like the houses are small, and they have kind of an extending roof which creates a larger eave area, yep. and that kind of adds to the illusion. And, you know, when kids were going up to the top of, of Mount Soledad to, you know, study. Yep. <laughs> that was would, part of the adventure or this stop, would be, right? Yeah, this would be an educational notion along the side, but it just isn't true and never has been. Because ah, ah. I was one of those kids, and I still want to believe... I do too. You know, it's a great story, but it just, it doesn't happen to be true. And neither is it true that down there at Mission, um, oh, it's called Belmont Park, where the roller coaster is. Years and years and years ago, someone was 
riding on, they were, you know, riding on the, 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 the roller coaster and one of the roller coasters got off its track somehow and was thrown across the street with screaming people aboard into the jack-in-the-box on the other side of the street. It just isn't true. Okay. You know, but it's so interesting because even to this day, I will get a note every now and again from somebody who says, Ken, I saw it with my own eyes. And I just simply reply, no, you didn't. You're living in Mission Beach. yeah and all and all that that might imply exactly so uh out of all and this is such a oh man this is such a low-hanging fruit question but i'm genuinely curious which which is all your years your entire tenure between all the stories you've done about san diego between kpbs and before that nbc yeah what's your favorite what what is the thing that still to this day resonates with you the most I don't know. There's, there's, there are things that I, I think that's somewhat a function of what people talk to me about and say it is their favorite because the most favorite one is the one I'm currently working on. But people often talk to me about the story about the blue balloon. And the blue balloon was just the result of needing to do something under pressure. It was the end of, and this makes me seem very old, but we've been doing the show a long time. It was the end of the 1996 Republican convention in San Diego. Mm. And if you know how those political conventions go, the two candidates, in this case it was Dole and Kemp, are standing out there, you know, holding hands, and the balloons come down, and they play Happy Days Are Here Again. And it's a great, it's the grand finale. And I was given the assignment, look, Ken, you know, I was working at NBC. We've got to have something and about San Diego, something for tonight's newscast. Go down there and see if you can find something that's related to the convention, which is now wrapping up. So I went down there and I kind of thought it might be true, but I went down and checked. And up in the netting was one balloon that didn't get to fall with all the rest of them. So I wrote this poem about the blue balloon that didn't get to fall with the other ones. And it was so sad, it didn't get to play. And uh, so when it when the workers went up and took down the net, it fell all by itself, but nobody saw it. And we watched it fall and kind of bounce on the floor and then a couple times more. And it was sad that no one could see it and it didn't get to play with all the other balloons. So I picked it up and made it my own and brought it onto the set and said, here it is. It deserves its moment in the set. People still talk to me about that. It's amazing. They still say, you know, years and years ago, I remember you did this little poem about the blue balloon and it touched me and it made my family giggle and it made me feel good. And, you know, I'm affected by that. That makes me think, boy, that was, you know, that was great. That was fun. And and what do you think it was about the blue balloon that people connected to? I, I don't know. I think there's just a, a kind of a sweetness to it. It didn't have anything to do particularly with San Diego history. It just was uh, a moment, a little a little sweet thing, the kind of thing that maybe you wouldn't notice, but maybe you would, you know, and, and uh, just kind of creating something out of that that was larger than just the 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 balloon itself yeah it talked about our emotions and maybe we connected with something that we weren't able to be a party to when we were kids yeah see and that's what i'm getting at and that's kind of what i see more is that we've all at some point <laughs> felt like that blue balloon and here you are someone that we love and trust in the oh. community that's bringing that blue balloon into the spotlight and giving that blue balloon its moment right right and um and I, I've looked at that a couple of times over the years since, and it, I, I think you know this being in the, in the business. Sometimes when you're under a lot of time pressure to get something done, and that was the case, you know, we just had a couple of hours to bang yeah. this thing out. Bill Kuklinski was my photographer, said, let's go, let's find this, let's do this. And um, sometimes the sort of the creativity pushes you to just look for the simple things because it isn't always the big picture. You know, it isn't always the grand big story. It's the little thing. It's the tiny little part of the big picture. And I try to focus sometimes very narrowly on those little things that are not necessarily a part of the whole story. So it isn't all about the convention and we're wrapping up and gee, it put millions of dollars in San Diego's coffers. It was, it was this little balloon. It was just that little balloon. 
people talk about that. They also talk to me about the the guy named Mondo down on Coronado. Yes. Mondo was a public works employee who drove a um oh a tractor, you know, and, and his job was to keep the the sand on Coronado Beach free of kelp. And after a particular storm, there was a lot of kelp that had washed up. And so he decided to bury it under sand, you know, that he'd pushed here and there and everywhere. But because of the way Mondo is, he couldn't just do that. He had to make the mounds into various little shapes, yep. actually pretty big shapes. And, and on the top, plant a little ice plant. And although he had never seen it when we interviewed him, from the air, jets coming in and out of North Island could see that what he had spelled out on a very, very large scale was the word Coronado. So amazing. And people don't see it. You know, there, there's people out there kind of running up and down these hills, and they never know. And they still talk about it to this day. Mm-hmm. When they learn that, and they never know, like you said. Yeah, yeah. People, um, they, they tell me that this show and these stories are important to them uh, for a number of different reasons. So much of what you see on television now is all about contentious fighting, about people disliking each other. There's really a trend, and, and not to digress, but they used to say about Johnny Carson that one of the reasons Johnny Carson was so successful on The Tonight Show is that you trusted that whatever situation he encountered, he would never embarrass himself. So true. And if he was not embarrassed, you would not be embarrassed. You could relax. Yeah. You could enjoy the show. You could go to sleep, and he gave you a sense that things were okay. They may be a little goofy, but they were okay. Now everything's turned on its head. The the, um, performers and artists and talk show hosts who are the most successful are the ones who deliberately make you feel uncomfortable, who make your skin crawl. I know. And, and, And that is something people speak to me about and they say we trust your show we trust that for half an hour it's going to be okay we can sit there with our kids and watch it and no one's going to be embarrassed we'll get a smile we'll learn a little something and i consider that a kind of a responsibility and when people say to me oh we're so we're so grieving and they sometimes seem to be that you're not doing them anymore please consider doing a couple more. I can't pretend I'm not affected by that. I think that's awesome because I'm in that category. So here I am trying to balance, I'll share this with you personally, trying to balance kind of going and and experiencing some things and doing some traveling and stuff. And yet honoring that great, I won't call it a responsibility, but it is a, a, it is a responsibility to kind of continue providing something that's important, is kind of life-affirming, is a positive thing in our city, and helps create a sense of who we are. Because if you don't have that, if you don't feel that San Diego is anything more than just a place I'm visiting until I can go back to Pittsburgh where I came from, um, you don't care about land use decisions. You don't care if people have littered. You don't care whether or not the streets are maintained. You don't care about your city. But if you have a connection to it in some way, so true. oh, it has deep roots. I feel good about this. And, and you know, if to the extent that my program validates all of our decisions to live here, I feel good about that. And I think it has a cumulative positive effect that the people care more about the city. They, they want it to be successful. They think of it as, as their home and they're proud of these things that no one I think very much has talked about. All they say is, oh, we have a great zoo and we have beautiful beaches and aren't we America's finest city? Well, yeah. we may be, but not for those reasons. I completely concur. A couple of things I wanted to say, which is I have a complete disconnect with the late night landscape right now. It's so wild that you bring that up because I'm a product of uh, Johnny Carson and, and then Letterman, and I look at the landscape now, and I'm, there's no escape. There's absolutely no escape. You know, you've got these entertainers just being as divisive as every single outlet out there. So thanks to you and what you do, you do give us that escape, but it's not about you. You're, you're celebrating our community, and you're the vehicle. And that's why I think it works so famously, and I never want you to stop. Well, I'm honored by that. I have to say that there is the reality, and you know this, that the reality of trying to get people to watch and establish an identity, you can't be completely under your wing. you got to get out there and promote 
and you've got to say, you know, watch my show and go on social media and do these things. I do. So I'm, I don't, you know, just present something and then run away from it. But, sure. but you're right. To me, uh, I don't think I'm the most interesting thing on the show. I think all of the guests are, without exception, infinitely more interesting than me. And I say that as a compliment. Uh, and, and I say that as just a reality. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm fully aware of what I am and what I'm not. You know, I'm never going to be on the cover of Gentleman's Quarterly. I'm just the guy who you can trust and be comfortable with um, telling you the story. There's a there is a, an old story that Bing Crosby used to tell. And he'd say that when he was in the shower and he'd be singing songs. Blah, 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 um, I'm sorry, I'm saying this wrong, but people, when they get in the shower and go, blah, 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 they think they sound every bit as good as Bing Crosby. Right. And, and um, so he used to say that he didn't intimidate people. They felt that when they were, you know, in the shower or when they were singing or when they were making jokes or whatever, they were every bit as good as him. So they weren't threatened by him and they didn't feel that he felt that he was any better than they were. Right. So they accepted him and they welcomed him and they didn't see him as this other. They saw him kind of as one of us. Yes. And that created um, a sort of an affection for this guy. Truth of the matter is, and you know because you're in the business, it's much, much, much harder than that. He, he, he was a consummate professional, an extraordinarily gifted guy who made what appeared so easy... Uh, he made it. He made it appear so easy, but it was really extremely difficult. What what he did. Yep. And to the extent that you're not this personality who you know thinks it's all about me, um, I, I think it's a good thing. And and um, because I don't think it's all about me, I I am well aware of my limitations, <laughs> and I try to emphasize the things that I love doing and seem to be able to do well, which is to tell other people's stories and to present them in a way that maybe we haven't seen them in the past. But it is about you in the same breath, though. I can't imagine there being another messenger. It's just who else in this community can tell us and take us through these experiences. You're the guy. Well, from nice from my say, vantage, you're nice to say that. Thank you. I I I'm really fortunate to have I think the best gig you could ever have in in television. When I was growing up, I grew up in L.A. and I watched KC. It's, it was then called KNXT, okay. Channel Two in L.A. And they had you know the anchorman doing the news. It was Jerry Dunphy, and the weather guy was Bill Keen, and Gil Stratton did the sports, and Ralph Story was a guy who came on and he did little essays about Los Angeles and about people. And I got to know him a little bit. And although I was more a technical geek in those days than I was right. interested in being in front of the microphone, I always thought it would be so fun to be a part of a show like that. And it turned out I got the opportunity to, to do, you know, Ken Kramer's About San Diego. Along the it's different, but along the lines of what he did, because I noticed as people were watching that newscast, how oh you know you'd see the stabbing and the car crash and everything, and then Ralph's story would come on, and and everybody would kind of go quiet in the room that was watching TV, and they kind of lean in, and they'd talk about his story the next day. It was impactful. It was yeah. different. It was something that connected with them. And we need good investigative reporting, and we need solid journalism and we need all of those things in this day and age we truly do but i think we also can have a little dessert now and again and maybe i can provide that yes indeed now you are fourth generation californian correct yeah that's right my what would that be great 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 grandfather came to mine gold in jamestown california in, wow. in 1848 that's amazing. Yeah. yeah not, so, not a lot of you out there. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> or here. <laughs> so I'm very much a Californian, and I very much uh, feel proud to be a Californian and feel connected to California from its golden rolling hills in the, in the north yeah. and the Central Valley and the, you know, the breadbasket of America to Southern California. I've always loved California and have relatives scattered up and down the state. So... To me, when people take issue with California and say that we're shallow or we're a bunch of airheads or any of those kinds of things, they say, no, I don't think so. I wrote a, wrote a blog a while back about, about 
sort of a response to drivers. People were saying, when it rains, people can't drive in California. And I say, no, not really. It's that it only rains here once every nine months. And what we're not good at driving on is oil. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what gets on the streets. And, you know, after two or three days rain, we seem to be able to drive fine. And by the way, everybody came from someplace else to be here. Did we suddenly forget how to turn into a skid when we <laughs> came to San Diego? I don't think so. So I kind of defend California I against, against this. And San Diegans particularly, I yeah. want to defend them. And where did you uh, where'd you go to high school? And you came down here for college at San Diego State, right? Yeah, I went to high school at um, a school in near Pasadena called St. Francis, St. Francis High School. It was taught by the Capuchins, and I got kicked out. I just was hopeless. Did you? Yeah, I just was hopeless. I just couldn't, couldn't um, mesh with the system. I just was not an athlete. I was not a scholar. I just did not thrive there. And so I went over to a place called John Muir, which was the public high school. And there I did just fine and uh, transferred from there to Juco, Pasadena City College, which in those days you could transfer your units right down to San Diego State. Yep. So you'd take the first two years up there and then bring your units down here. And I wanted to come to San Diego State because they had not only a radio station, but imagine you know, they had a television station. Wow. What a place to come. And, uh, and I've loved it ever since. You moved to San Diego in what year? That was, ba that was back in the last century. <laughs> uh, it was 1968. 68. Yeah, that's when I came down to state. And what was state like then? Because <laughs> I came in 88. I was 20 years after you. Oh, you were? Yeah, I was 88. Same yeah. storyline, though. Woodland Hills came down to San Diego with... Uh, a TCF degree in my uh, telecommunications yeah, and film degree in my mind. Yeah. Dr. Anderson, Dr. Metter, Joe Johnson, all those people who taught us, Liz Heighton. I remember them and they were just great. They were very influential. And, uh, and Ken Jones, and I don't leave anybody out, but you know those people because I think they probably were still around 20 yeah. years later. Tim Wolfmeyer was around and yep. all these folks. But, um, I, you know, what, what was it like? Well, it was, it was crowded. You certainly didn't have anyone come to your apartment and drive you to class. There wasn't a competitive um, environment for places you could stay. Yeah. And you kind of find that now around campus. Yeah. You uh, had to crash a lot of courses. It was during the Vietnam War. So there was a certain kind of overlay. Students, male students were needing classes they needed their 15 units or you no longer had a student deferment so you couldn't just casually go to san diego state you had to go there and you had to take a pretty heavy load and you had to succeed or you know if you were um potentially fodder for the vietnam war that could be a consequence if sure. you're not doing so so there was a certain tension around all of that. There was student activism on campus. Um, there weren't near as many buildings. Uh, <laughs> the, the library was um, across from the telecommunications and film building across the grassy lawn there. Yep. It was stifling in there. There was no air conditioning that I recall. It was very, very um, hot. And if you went in there to study or whatever, you know, you were uncomfortable. Um, there was a tremendous amount of walking to get from place to place on campus. There still is. Yeah. Uh, and I just loved it. I came down here to San Diego State, and I looked down, and some of those days I'd come out of the buildings, and if it was in October or November, the Santa Ana winds were blowing, and it was achingly clear. You yeah. could just see forever. It was warm. The students were interested and they were active and it was just a wonderful wonderful time yeah and here was this little 780 watt fm radio station in the speech arts building that broadcast classical music and from time to time there was ken kramer on there announcing shostakovich or wow <laughs> something because that was my student assistant job so was that kpbs or was that kcr at that time it was k actually technically it was kebs okay it had not yet changed call letters to kpbs okay but about oh 
I think of the exact year, 71 or so, early 1970s, a group of us who had been students and still were felt that there weren't the right kind of practical broadcast experiences available, that KEBS slash KPBS was kind of a professional place, was getting to be a part of NPR, was hiring people who had a certain skill level, and that there needed to be an opportunity for somebody just to learn how to spin records and sell time and announce and say that was and this is and sunny and 70 degrees yeah be be a dj understand how audio worked understand how you went out and sold time and so a group of us there were about three of us who formed kcr we put kcr on the air was jerry zulo jim hancock and myself i never knew that yeah and tom tokar and i was president of a group called um, aztec broadcasters and i was the one who went to the student council made the argument that we needed this station, got enough money to get us going, helped with, you know, Jim and a bunch of others, John Strife and others, to get the first transmitters, put them in the dormitories, and put KCR radio on the air. Wow. So I guess I'm a founding father of KCR. and I I'm, had no idea. Yeah, I'm proud of that. Proud of you of should being a, be being a part of that. Thank and, you for giving me a career and so many of my peers. I'm the, that's my first broadcasting gig was KCR. That's what we wanted. We had in mind that students could actually get the hands-on experience of programming, getting in front of a mic. It wasn't on cable in those days, so you'd it would just be going into the dormitories. Sure, uh, with a what do you call them carrier current transmitters. Still punk rock though. It, well, not what we were playing. You're playing classical, we were, but no, we weren't playing classical. But we were playing oh, you know, whatever the pop songs were at the time. And there's a story I sometimes tell about Jerry Zulo and, and what our audience was. And and um, we uh, he and I for some reason were on the microphone together, and it was I think a Saturday afternoon. And we said, ladies and gentlemen, um, for the first person who calls, I can't remember what the number was, first person who calls, we got a record album because they were 33 and a third. Sure. It's probably John Denver sings the hits or something. Oh, yeah, there it is. Who wants it? No lights flash. <laughs> There's no lights flashing. So uh, we say, here's two or three more other you know, albums, the living strings. And I don't know. We've got a bunch of albums here. We've got like a half dozen albums. They're yours. Just call this number we're giving you. Crickets. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. So Jerry reaches into his pocket and he pulls out some pocket change and he throws it on the counter. He says, this is a dollar and a quarter, uh, five albums, dollar and a quarter, and we will bring it to your dormitory right now. All you got to do is call us. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. So finally Jerry gets a piece of paper and, and he... He just, he, he kind of takes it in front of the microphone and goes, you hear that? That, my friends, is a certified cashier's check in the amount of $10,000, which we will bring to your <laughs> records, a dollar and a quarter, and a certified cashier's check for, for 10, 10 grand. Not a, not a call. <laughs> we were pretty sure that no one was listening. On that particular day. So KCR has come a very, very long, long way. way. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound too far off from certain stages of my radio career either. Uh, you and know I had the, a bigger signal. You know the feeling. I do know the feeling too well. And uh, I did want to ask you about Ken Kramer Day. What's that all about? It just passed a couple. Wasn't it just like last week or something? Isn't there a Ken Kramer Day here in San Diego? Uh, it is June the 19th. I oh, think. Oh, is it it's June? June? I thought it was early Feb. June 19th. I think it's Juneteenth. Okay. Um, I, uh, in the county of San Diego, there may, there may be one also in the city of San Diego. And, and my understanding is that um, I personally can drive any speed on county roads <laughs> and the bars open a little later and, and, and a little earlier and stay open a little later. <laughs> and, uh, no, it was an, it was an, I've been honored by the city and the county, both with a day. And, you know, that's just, that's just huge because, it's amazing. well, you know, I, I, I think it is, but, but at the same time, and, and I suspect you're the same way, you know, you have achieved more than a modest amount of success in your life doing this. And, uh, but you still think of yourself as a kid on skates. Yep. And when some, or at least 
I think most people do. And I couldn't wait for you to get here. I was like excited, little kid. I'm going to do an interview with Ken Kramer. I get it. Well, you know, and, and I'm the same way about other things, you know. And when, and when people say to me, oh, you're kind of this iconic figure in town. And, you know, you've, and they do. Oh, my gosh, the stories about people coming up to me and they say, I'm estranged from my son. We never speak. But once a week on Thursday nights, he comes into the living room, I come into the living room, and we turn on your show, and we watch it together. And it's a bonding thing for me. That's beautiful. And, you know, stuff like that. And you just say to yourself, wow, you know, I, I still, I have to be honest, I still think of myself as just this kind of goofy kid from Pasadena <laughs> that grown-ups have given some responsibility to. Right. But at the same time, I do feel that responsibility, and I'm greatly honored by it and the fact that there would be a day or uh uh you know a, a hall of fame or these these things that have come to me are um just they're they're at once wonderful and at the same time I kind of shake my head and say that can't be me you know I'm just I'm still that that guy who who you know likes to play around with radio and and or TV and and You've done enough radio and you know enough radio people to know that there is a lot of little kid in them. There's a lot of just joy at the magic of speaking into a microphone. Yeah. And outside there's a tower with a couple of blinking lights. And the weirdness that people all over can have their little radios and tune in and hear what you're presenting. This is magical. This is wonderful. This is a... It's both a responsibility and a joy. I know. And it's such a blast in an, in an almost mystical kind of way that's hard to describe. And if you, if you never lose touch with that, every day is fun. Every day is exciting. How have you stayed so grounded and so positive in an industry that can be so tumultuous? Because I do try to tap into that. But when the industry can be heavy-handed, heavy how do you keep so grounded, Ken? I am curious. Well, to the extent that I am, I think I have to attribute it to some good fortune, you know, honestly, some luck, that I came to San Diego at the time when the market was growing, and where now, if you wanted to work in San Diego, uh, in the DMA of San Diego, you'd have to work in several other places and come back. I was able to kind of surf into the setting because I was here at you know, a different time. Um, I think you can't take things too personally. You have to understand that the business is a little bit like Major League Baseball in that managers are released and they seem to find work right away with another team. And it all has to do with, oh, strategies and cue factors and all kinds of things that that are kind of beyond your power to affect because as you know and uh, you know I've been let go by commercial stations that I was working for and you just can't take it personally it's just a uh, it's just a business and there's going to be something else out there if you love it and I mean if it's in your blood if the, those chemicals are floating in your in your body and you just got to do this radio it's it's like it's like um, people who are on the stage and they say, I must die on the stage, of course. You know, this, is all, this is all I can do. If you have this calling and you have this kind of sense that you're part of something magical and wonderful and you feel the responsibility to inform and all of those other things that are a part of radio and TV, you just can't do anything else. Yeah. You know, you just kind of have to. And I'm not sure that it's ever going to make you terribly rich, but you will have experiences that nobody, you know, and I've been fortunate to do both radio and TV and news and all kinds of things. You meet presidents and you meet uh, killers and you meet all kinds of extraordinary artists, artists and yeah. characters that you just have experiences that other people who sell shoes at Nordstrom don't have. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you can sell insurance and I, you know, I love people who sell insurance and, and you can have a very well-established good life that 
will provide you with lots of benefits and into your old age. Radio may or may not do that for you. <laughs> but if you just love it, that's where you're grounded. You just say, yeah. I, I know this is not a happy time for me at the moment, that things are, have gone bad. I, I ran into a personality who's just toxic and caustic. But there's just nothing else I'd rather do. And I just know that about myself. Yeah. And, and if you're that way, and I know a lot of people who just are, they just have to do it. Yeah. You know, they just have to do it in, in whatever form, whether it's podcasts or on a clear channel, 50,000 watt flamethrower. I get it. You just got to do it. And um, I, th- I, you know, I, I'm trying to the happy hair. I was thinking about happy hair. Man, a, remember happy hair? And what I remember is that he was more than 80 years old and he was down at the Union Tribune, they had a little radio station down there that was broadcasting on, I think it was the cable. I remember that. And there was Happy Hair, over 80 years old, and it was clear that this is just what gave him joy. This is what fueled his sense of self and his perception of the world and everything. This was him. And he was going to do it till the day he died, and by God, he did. Yeah. There's nothing else you'd rather do. That's the category yeah. I do fall in. But I've made the mistake. I'd be lying to you if I didn't, where I have over-personalized stuff. And because of that, it, it, it did carry toxicity. And I've had to definitely check myself and realize my faults and my missteps and reprogram myself. Well, you know, you're a, you're, you're a performer. You're proud of what you do. And, you know, you should be and and performers, you know, tend to be that way. And it's real easy to talk about, you know, feeling a different way. But, yeah, I've I've been really fortunate in that I found over a period of time and and, you know, I was doing news and I was doing talk radio and I was doing news again and I was doing news on TV. And in each of these contracts that I signed, I put in, hey, I want to do about San Diego. I want to do some of that because that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And eventually it resonated with people more than the other stuff I was doing, you know, and I remember I was covering a SWAT one time. It was up in La Jolla and, um, and the, it was for TV and the police came out and they were going to do a, a briefing, you know, and everyone was set up with their tripods and stuff and get whatever comments about this SWAT. And, um, before the thing began, the briefing officer waved me over and he said, oh, I just got to tell you, my, my wife and I just, you know, we just love your show. We love <laughs> the blue balloon. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. You know, we love that about San Diego thing you do. I mean, you, know, you do the news and everything, that about San Diego thing. And then, so help me, they brought somebody out in a stretcher who had been, I guess, the victim of one of these, had been held, you know, and, and, and he was on a stretcher and they brought him out and they loaded him into the... I guess he wasn't seriously hurt or anything, but he'd been through a trauma and his eyes catch mine. He says, Hey, I love that show. You do the <laughs> victim, you know, is good. And, and the news director I was working with at the time said, yeah, you know, there, this is trending in a way where we've got to do more of that. We've yeah. got to do more of that. That's what's, that's, what's clicking with people. We can make some money on that. And that's when I went, yes, you know, that's the moment when, like the old Carol Burnett, yeah, the not Carol Burnett, or, the, the, where you throw your hat in the yeah. air, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, you know, she's, hey, maybe, maybe I, uh, maybe this is actually working out. So does that speak to the idea that there should be persistence and dogged determination? Maybe it does, it but does. just every, you know, even though you got to do a hundred other little things, if you can sneak in just that little part that what, what you want to do. At least that seemed to work for me. Long answer to your question. No, no, great answer. And my, uh, I'll let you drink there. And my final question for you is, what, what is it about San Diego? I think it's a bunch of different things. I think it's, um, we're a very young city. We celebrate buildings that are 100 years old, if you can imagine. And people from back east laugh at that. <laughs> 100 years old, my, you know, that's just, that's nothing at all. We're new. I think in a lot of ways, we're still kind of finding our legs. We still get super excited when the national media comes to our city and, and covers an event here. Um, we're, we're growing. We're developing this sense of self. I often say, you know, when, I, when the Chargers used to play here, you'd go down when I could afford it to the game. And you'd ask people, and who are you cheering for? And they'd say, Cincinnati. You'd say, why? 
well, because that's where I'm from. You'd say, well, how long have you been in San Diego? 35 years. So, well, at what point are you no longer a Cincinnati-in yeah. and you're now a San Diegan? How do we get there? You know, San Diego's got so many people who feel that they're just here from some, from some other place. And it isn't like back home. I know. Well, let's make it better. You know, let's let's work for that. Let's let's find some consistency of architecture. Let's care. Let's let's do great things. Um, San Diego seems to be still in many ways feeling. I don't want to say um, insecure, but it isn't. It doesn't have that same sense of self-confidence that's what i've noticed that a lot of other cities have and i think it has to do with our youth and i think it has to do with the fact that a lot of people have come here businesses have come here sports enterprises have come here taken advantages of of us and then left to what they perceive as greener more lucrative pastures and that takes enough that has an effect upon our self-esteem i agree it's a blow or when you get these managers or corporate figures who come from bigger cities and they think they can run train on San Diego. Like, eh, yeah, small little town, these locals, oh, treat us like we're Hawaiians. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I'm not saying we want to be a megalopolis. We don't want to be Los Angeles. But I think that there are, um, I, th- I think a smart kind of holistic view of San Diego says, what are our natural resources here? They are coal, so we're not going to build factories. We don't make steel here, but what do we have? We have sunshine. We have people who want to come here. We want to build facilities that accommodate that, whether it's our convention center or our attractions or whatever it is. That is our clean industry, yeah. it seems to me. And we kind of need um, leadership that focuses that. And we need leadership that says, we're a pretty great place. When we lost the Chargers, the city was grieving. And I'll set aside my personal opinions about football and concussions and all that kind of stuff. And whether in the long term, San Diego might actually be considered kind of farsighted. Progressive. In terms of how it, you know, refused to buckle under to greedy owners. But what we heard on the night when the Chargers left, and there was that night, we didn't hear our civic officials come out and say, we are a great city. We are proud of what we've done here. How can I, ladies and gentlemen of San Diego, how can I look myself in the mirror in the morning and say, yeah, we're going to give money to this football team when we need our potholes repaired, when we need this to be done, when we need this to be done. You create a pep rally as a, as a political and business leader. You make the city feel good about itself. And instead, we kind of came away feeling, it seemed to me, like we'd lost something. Sad oh, maybe, trombones. Yeah. Wah, 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 wah. That's how I felt. Yeah, maybe we did and maybe we don't. The jury's kind of out on this. I agree. And you have an opportunity there to make San Diego feel just great. Yeah. By God, I'm kind of proud of the decision we made. You know, yeah, I'm going to miss the Chargers, but we're, you know, we're, we're okay. good. We're okay. We're, we're good. good. I kind of didn't hear that. I heard they left us. We didn't leave them. You know, okay, whatever. We but felt, yeah, we took the victim role. We kind of did. Rather than. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of did. So San Diego has got a lot, I think, of growth still ahead of it and i don't just mean you know buildings and tall skyscrapers and you know a better airport but let's do great things let's do things that a city can be proud of let's make you know let's invest in the arts and let's find ways to improve our cities and let's seriously deal with the homeless problem and all that kind of stuff and no i'm not running for office but i was just gonna say no. can i start uh no no <laughs> no, no. that's not it at all but don't we all feel that way i 100%. mean don't we all feel that way you know because this is a terrific place look at where we're situated look at this day outside today I don't know when you're hearing this but outside today it's just gorgeous i'm in the ocean three four times a week just enjoying our beaches our culture i I, there's not a person other than you that's more passionate about this town (laughs) and you're inspiring me and i do think you should run well i (laughs) i think they have standards for public office but but the 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 idea that this wonderful wonderful place 
uh, should feel a little inferior to any other place or be a little slow. It just has to do with our youth. And, and, and we forget that we've just really exploded as a population just in the time that I've been here. Um, it's just grown so Staggering. inordinately. But let's not be fearful. Let's not be, you know, that there's always that 30, 35% that says no. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I want everything to be the way it that it, the way it is for me. I want to close the gate and do all that, but and and just have it stay the same. But there are young people, bright people coming here who can change the city, who can make it a a center of of um you know, not just biotech, but all kinds just of technology, oh. things like that. Really clean industries and 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 find smart ways to accommodate that increased population and feel good about ourselves. If there's a message that about San Diego as a show sends, I think it's that we should feel good about this place. It's full of wonderful stories, extraordinary people, and it's a, it's a great, great place to live for so many reasons. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure sitting across from one of those extraordinary people today. Thank you. I really am honored that you would have me. Oh, that was wonderful. Uh, thank you, Ken. Learned so much about our town and you as well. And I will continue to be a fan uh, of what you do. It's kind of funny. I'll give you a little inside baseball, as Ken put it. After we were done with the interview, I actually asked Ken for a job. <laughs> I said the next time he goes out to shoot uh, another series and another run, if you will, of About San Diego, I asked him if I can go along and be his intern. True story. All right, I do want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, okay? It's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash U-Y-E-W. If uh, you're not a member, if you're not a patron, would definitely encourage you to do so, especially right now. It really hurts or hurts. My back is what hurts. Uh, your patronage helps uh, while my back hurts. And uh, definitely encourage you to uh, support the platform in this podcast on Patreon. It does help keep the network alive because all costs with all the shows we pay for uh, directly and your help definitely or your donations go to help with those costs. And speaking of which, I love my Patreon network. You know who you are with a special shout out to uh, Jennifer, Butch, uh, boy, Jason, going names top of my head, Mike, Dave, Mariposa Ice Cream, huge donation every month. Normal Heights, you want the best homemade ice cream on the planet, even though I have to stop eating it because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Might be going in for back surgery. Uh, yes, Mariposa ice cream is the friggin' best. And definitely support Anna and Tim and all their locations. Again, Normal Heights. And they've got a couple up in North County as well. Oceanside, Temecula. Okay, until next time, be well, much aloha. And thank you again to Ken Kramer.